What's going on, everybody? This is Jerome Moore, host and creator of Deep Dish Conversations. And firstly, I want to say thank you for all of support and thank you for exploring the perspectives of social change with me on this platform. I want to encourage you all to like, subscribe, and follow us on YouTube and on your favorite podcast listening platform. And make sure you give us a five-star rating if you're loving the Deep Dish Conversations. I appreciate all of the support again. I hope you all enjoy this episode. Marcus, how you doing, man? Welcome to the platform. I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. Nah, man, uh, thank you for being here, man. And uh, you are a candidate for criminal court judge, you know, Division 6, man. How you feel about that? I feel really good about it. I feel excited and encouraged by the support that I've gotten so far. Um, so I'm looking forward to this journey. You made a quick change. I did. You was doing general sessions, Division 9. Division 9. That's correct. Um, and, you, and you switched, man. What, what, uh, what made you hit the switch on that? Well, there's a number of things. I would say just kind of in short form, um, the judge that's, that is in Division Six currently announced that he's retiring the day before the cutoff to file for his particular office. And so I wanted to make sure that there is a, a candidate that people would you know, want to look at to choose to elect for that position and not just anybody that may have had the opportunity or the information first. No, nah, man. Um and criminal court is an important court, right? And I think um, I think representation is important, right? It is. And it's a different type of representation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, and from my knowledge, you know, I'm I'm 31. Um, I don't think if elected, we will have had a person um, that looks like you, not of just color. Mm-hmm. But literally, like dreads and you know uh, how you carry yourself, and mm-hmm. like um, typically, probably stereotypical type of person that you might see mm-hmm. in a criminal courtroom or a courtroom in general that the narrative is put out, especially by black men, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I think that is crucial um, for you to be running. And giving people an opportunity, really being a trailblazer, right? Saying, hey, you can look like this and still be excellent, still sit in these positions um, and then not be held against you. Mm -hmm. However, have you felt like your presence have been held against you and there's been barriers? So I think that's a good question. Um, I would say throughout my life there there have been barriers. Uh, just in general, when you're dealing with uh, the presentation of a black man in the media, there are not a, a lot of positive reinforcements where you can say, I want to mold myself after this individual outside of the stereotypical athlete or entertainer. Um, it's difficult to find an intellectual that you can admire. And you know, I was fortunate. I'm a member of Omega Sci-Fi fraternity. And so um, there were trailblazers in my fraternity, like Z. Alexander Luby, who there's a Luby Center named after that was involved in civil rights. Uh, Avon Williams, another black attorney. Uh, uh, J.C. Napier. So there's a lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, attorneys, uh, black attorneys that, that paved a way to make me feel confident to be an attorney, to be a black man in the community. Uh, and then when you kind of go to the next layer of what you're talking about, about the representation, how one appears to other. Uh, there's oftentimes prejudices placed upon black men that wear their hair like mine. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a part of the reason why I took up the mantle that I did to take on more criminal defense cases. Because uh, when I interned at the public defender's office, uh, sitting judge presumed that I was a defendant based mm-hmm. on my appearance. 
Um, it didn't matter that I had spoken to her for a client. It didn't matter that I had been in the holding cell with the client. It didn't matter that I was able to move freely and about. You know, the fact was that I looked like a young black man with locks and he had to be a defendant. And so um, those things are, are things that were kind of impressed upon me about how I feel personally. Um, and so to think that I could then be an inspiration or, or get somebody make them feel that the system is actually fair, that I could mm -hmm. have a chance uh, if I came in front of him and came into his court. Somebody that comes from the Nashville area, that comes from the neighborhoods, you know, understands what's really going on mm -hmm. to say, um, this person could give me a fair opportunity. The, the thing that we talk about, the buzzword is implicit bias, right? What biases do people bring into their everyday lives uh, that impact people? And being a judge, you have a lot of power over people's lives. And if you don't have someone that can have an authentic conversation with you about your implicit bias, then you pass that on in your sentencing, you pass that on in your discretion about certain rules um, that you apply for maybe evidence or objections, just different things, you know, it seeps into every every part of your life. So um, I, I definitely agree that having somebody that looks like me um, is, a, is a change that's needed. And I think Nashville is ready for that change. Can you give us a little background about um, the inspiration on why practice law? Why get into law, right? Um, because maybe like you, I mean, maybe like me, growing up here in Nashville, you know, you might thought, you know, I thought I was going to the NBA, <laughs> you know. Um, and so give us a little background if, like, did you always think that you was going to be an attorney? Is it something you always wanted to do? Or is something that, like, kind of happened or, or spiked that inspiration mm -hmm. to get into the criminal legal system? So my first cousin is a rapper. His name is Professionally Starlito. Uh, when I was in undergrad, he got a contract from Universal Cash Money, and I was an undergrad at Tennessee State at the time. And just learning the music industry, learning kind of what he went through, you learn a lot about contracts, and so you assume you have to be an attorney to, to do those things or at least understand the, the relation of intellectual property and those types of things. So that was one of my sparks. Um, I call those the kind of thing, the sparks, the things that start the fire, right? right. Um, and then my dad, he's an engineer. He went to Tennessee State. My mom's an engineer. She went to Tennessee State. Um, so I knew that I wanted to go to Tennessee State. Uh, did not want to do mechanical engineering like my dad. Mm -hmm. uh, he's very, I mean, he has a patent. So he's extremely intelligent. And that was intimidating for me. So I wanted to find some kind of find my own lane. Uh, and the time that I went to school, 2003, uh, is when I started Tennessee State. You know, that's two years after 9-11 happened, so I'm learning a lot about politics. How does that involve us? Uh, I don't know if you remember Jenna 6 that happened in Louisiana. Yeah. I went down to Louisiana while I was an undergrad to take part in those demonstrations. And so I started learning about politics and wanting to get involved in it. And so as I was going through uh, undergrad at Tennessee State, uh, I got injured playing football, so I had to figure out another career. And I was already involved in politics. I understood law. Um, I always wanted to learn the answers to the questions of how it could be legal for one that looks like me to be three-fifths of a person, and that's legal. Right. Um, I think uh, Dick Gregory is famous for saying, or, or even you know, a lot of the uh, uh, black leaders talk about that things that are legal are not necessarily, things that are illegal are not necessarily wrong, because at one point it was wrong for me to learn how to read, it was wrong for me to learn, or illegal for me to learn how to read, illegal for me to go to school, illegal for me to practice law. 
um, some of the barriers to the bar itself are created to keep people out, exclusionary. Right. And so learning, you know, learning to be a more inclusive person and understanding things is what pushed me into the legal field to understand how do you change these laws? Like what is civil rights? You know, how did a law, how did a, a screw in an elevator in Georgia, you know, change the entire civil rights law, civil rights act, you know, those types of things. So that's what some of the sparks that got me in the law. Man, um, being a black man and understanding um, the historical and even current um, situation with our criminal legal system and how it affects black people and people of color, black and brown people at a like, disproportional level, like mm -hmm. systemically. Um, what are your thoughts on that and how can you being in the seat of a how do you use your power if elected you know to a criminal court judge division six how do you use that power to you know combat some of those systemic policies and legislations and things that you know that are currently still going on and have happened historically affecting disproportionately black and brown folks well one thing that i think is a glaring uh kind of perspective for me that we're always sees is that when you have a conversation with uh, your peer group and mm -hmm. you all connect on a certain level, um, there are things that occur where it doesn't require either one of you to acknowledge it or to say or bring attention to it rather, both of you can acknowledge it without that happening. Um, and so I think that because of the my own lived experiences, having been profiled by the police, um, you know, living in East Nashville, uh, I lived in PA, Panorama Apartments, Berkshire, I think is what it's called now. Uh, driving in neighborhoods over there, I get pulled over just because I was a black man in a Honda, period. Didn't, didn't matter where I was going, whatever, that's just what was kind of the nature of the course. And so that generated a certain level of distrust with law enforcement as a citizen. Um, once you become an attorney, obviously you have to have a lot more interactions with law enforcement. And again, it's, it's about exposure and perspective. Uh, and and I'm, I'm not to say that I'm the sole change of you know, certain interactions in Metro Nashville with police officers, but I can say that for the officers that I interact with and the people that I interact with, um, I feel that I've been able to make um, a difference for them to have a, a, a different perspective of when they encounter a different black man. And so as a judge, you don't, you don't have power to make laws. You, you can't make laws. You're just interpreting, you know, whether or not a crime occurred or if the law is consistently held, you know, based on the standard of process. Mm -hmm. um, the things that you do have are the, the, the interactions and the opportunities to have conversations with different stakeholders about how things are done in Nashville. How has your experience thus far prepared you to to be a judge in a criminal court? So I think that you know there's a, a aspect of legal understanding that's required to mm -hmm. to be a judge. Uh, then I think there are life experiences that that one should have to be a judge. I think a certain engagement, involvement in community are things. Um, having integrity, certain characters and values that you have as a person are things. Um, I taught high school at East Lit. Uh, when I graduated undergrad at TSU. And so I feel that, you know, staying involved in the community, 
um, being in the community that I grew up in, seeing how different students are, are economic disparities, you know, seeing a lack of resources as a student, um, excuse me, as a teacher, um, those types of things can help inform me as a, also when I was attorney, as a criminal defense attorney dealing with indigent clients, um, seeing the similarities in between students that may not be doing well educationally and then also seeing a criminal defendant that may not be doing well or that may be accused of, of breaking or having a crime. What are the similarities in those things? Um, I think that there are root causes that uh, are consistent throughout whatever path of life that you have, wherever you may work or your, your career may take you. Um, but I think that all of those <clears throat> experiences help inform me or help me make decisions as a judge because I understand the impact of, you know, the victim itself if it's a murder, if it's a murder. Um, and then also the defendant, you know, what does that look like for their family? Um, someone that's accused of something, you know, you, you should, truly should be presumed innocent, right? right? Sometimes it feels like you're guilty and you have to prove your innocence. Um, and it shouldn't feel that way, but that seems to be sometimes the nature of our criminal justice system or the legal system. Justice, man. I, you know, this is a thing that, you know, you hear social justice, criminal justice. We want justice, right? Um, and justice looks different for everybody. Um, and many people don't ask themselves, I believe, and, you know, what does justice mean to them? Mm -hmm. And so I want to pose that question to you. What does justice mean to you? Um, and what does that look like here for the city of Nashville? So I think that's a, a very heavy question. Um, hmm. Because it's not just the criminal justice system in Nashville, right? When right. we were talking earlier, I mentioned about my grandmother's house and what happened with I-40. Um, I was at a meeting this past weekend for one Nashville for the cap for Jefferson Street. Mm -hmm. um, and that is to be some level of an appropriate fix for what has occurred to the residents that live there. But how does that restore you know, my grandmother that lost her house? that had to move to a different neighborhood, that had to scrounge up to pay for whatever. So when you look at justice, you know, I, that's why I said it kind of took a pause. That's a very, you know, heavy question from, you know, what's fair and equitable for everybody in the city of Nashville? Um, outside of myself running as a judge uh, for council persons, are they making equitable decisions for every constituent in their, mm -hmm. um, their district? Or is it just specific to a certain segment? Right. Um, when we are looking at you know, different breaks that are given to our entertainment-driven industries, how do those breaks impact the resources for a middle school or elementary school? Um, I think about Brick Church Middle School all the time. I drive by that school all the time. There is a very large Amazon warehouse that is on the same street. How much does Amazon contribute to the education or to those people that live in that community that are now disrupted by the many trucks that go through there. So those, those are things that I look at for what does fairness and equity look like for everyone in Nashville, you right. know? Um, looking at, again, from my perspective of running for judge, that is understanding that you are presumed innocent, that you do have an opportunity to be heard. Right. Um, those things are, are things that I don't think people feel that they get when they come into a courtroom. Sometimes they feel like uh, you're the one, the defendant, is the one that's most impacted by what goes on, but 
has the least interaction with what's going on with those choices. Right. So those are some of the things that I would like to try to change to, to have a person feel like they had their opportunity and day in court. So the three terms that I, I, I hear a lot, and I've mentioned this before, and I, I bring this up to all like the judicial candidates, right? Mm -hmm. Is the criminal justice, criminal legal, and criminal punishment system, right? Um, and I always ask if like, you know, you know, is that, that criminal punishment, that terminology, is that fair? But more so with you, what I want to propose to is, you know, what is alternatives to punishment? Right, and a big phrase that's being thrown around a lot is restorative justice, right? Mm -hmm. um, but many of us don't know what that looks like. Uh, we haven't really seen that implemented on a large scale, right? It might be cases here and there, mm -hmm. but I think it's uh, it's highly important that you know we just don't focus on the punishment and we focus on the healing and restorative because um, ninety percent, maybe more, of people that. That, that are engaged or incarcerated come back mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and how how do we restore them or, or we don't want them to come back and see you again right right, right. so what is that what is it unpack that for us a little bit that's that's a that's good so that's one so one of the things that i think that nashville has done and it kind of leads our state i would say uh with the safe surrender program where they had multiple agencies from government um district attorney's office, the judicial, the clerk's office, in an attempt to be able to have people reenter the community in a positive way. Um, those are, or programs or things that I think that are very helpful. Uh, again, you know, when you look at, and, and, I, and I taught, I mentioned I taught a government in Spanish at, at East. And so teaching and understanding how our government works, understanding, you know, at the very base and root of it, there are three different branches. There's you know, the executive branch, the judicial branch, and the legislative branch. When we're talking about restorative justice, uh, all those branches have to work together. Um, and you know, specifically in Tennessee, our legislative branch, um, because they would you know, need to pass laws or write the laws in a way that could allow for restorative justice, you know, certain minimums in sentencing, um, or you know, even opportunities for those that are classified as felons to be restored in a pathway that's easier for them to, as, as it is now, that's most difficult. I think most people uh, take for granted like having a driver's license or ID, identification. Right. Um, you know, in the black community uh, during Jim Crow, or, or excuse me, sometime after Jim Crow, you always had to have an identification um, before Jim Crow. This was after, like, during having your papers right. um, as a freed person. And that tracks back to, you know, you establishing that I'm a person and I I'm, have a right to be here. Um, and so things, you know, for felons, not having an ID, being able to say I'm a person, I can apply for a job, the different opportunities for work or careers that are available for ones that have committed, you know, their crimes. If they've, you know, served their time and, um, have made amends for, for what the crime that they have, were charged and convicted for, and they should have an opportunity for some rehabilitation. Right. Um, I think far too much uh, things are done in a punitive nature to punish, and I think that punishment is appropriate for certain crimes, but I think that it's also important and imperative to have a pathway for redemption and to restore, you know, so that way they can contribute to the community and not continue to drive up recidivism. Yeah, man. Um for me personally, I just think it's essential for all of our, you know, our judicial candidates, 
you know, future judges, you know, to to at least think about that and think about like our criminal legal system being more than just you know putting people away, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because if you know ninety percent of them are going to come back home and be community members, right? You know, what does that rehabilitation look like? Like, how do we, you know, what what other barriers are being created to prevent them from like from healing, mm-hmm. right? So I think I think. I think it's essential, and I think that's a lot of what I've been hearing from community mm-hmm. that community wants to see more of, right? Another big um, <laughs> topic, you know, um, is policing, right? Um, and you've mentioned earlier this is something that you've been directly affected by personally mm-hmm. um, and indirectly affected by just with family members, right? Mm-hmm. A big... Um, statement and phrases that's been happening lately uh, over the last couple of years, I would say since George Floyd, is like defund the police, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on defunding police and policing in general, and how could you use your voice and your power that you will have as a criminal court judge here in Nashville to push for you know um, more restorative practices, for more um, better policing because i think everybody can always be be better but um the reason i say that is because again a lot of times we have judges and people in our judicial kind of system that don't say anything right um and we understand i hope most citizens understand that you can't change you know laws and statutes but you can because you see people you interact you can use your voice um to kind of advocate or share your experiences with what you're using in the courtroom or how people are being affected. So how, how does all that play into your role as a potential, you know, criminal court judge? So, you know, again, like I said, you know, the, the judge doesn't, you know, make laws right. or, or they're not able to affect policy um, as it relates to how Metro police um how their policies are, the, the methods in which they conduct police activity in Nashville, uh, that's a separate, again, that's kind of a separate branch. You know, right. that, that's, again, a checks and balances. What right. would be appropriate would be if someone from the community challenged it, you know, maybe the community oversight board or mm-hmm. if some type of lawsuit or something like that. That would be the only way that I would directly have any kind of impact and, right. you know, wouldn't be able to talk about specifics of the case. But right, right. And let me, so let me, like, because let me, for everybody's listening, like, Marcus can't, he can't talk about open cases, right? But what I'm talking about is, for example, um, we just had a death, a mental health crisis death on I-65, mm-hmm. right? I believe that... Um, people like yourself and others that would potentially be sitting in those seats could could speak on that, on what could have been handled differently or better in our system, right? Um, I don't, and correct me if I'm wrong. I believe you all could speak on that and say, hey, I believe that we should. So the, the general rule, and, and again, like, I'm new to this, right? This right. is the first office I've, I've ever ran for. Right. I, I felt, you know, very strongly about running for this position, so I did it. Right. I don't know all the answers. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that, you know, the reason why judges can't talk about, you know, potential, potential cases, open cases, hypotheticals, are because of the possibility that something could occur or wind up in your court mm-hmm. or 
the perception that um, the way that an officer may have handled an interaction based on the information that we as a general public have um, and not have more information that hasn't made be publicly released or things like that. Um, so, you know, and, and again, in those situations, as a judge, the only thing at that point, I'm just a citizen of the community. Right. Um, you know, as a citizen of the community, it would not, uh, you know, I, I, I could think of, you know, people in my family that struggle with mental health issues. And if they were in that position, how would I feel to right. see my family member be shot on the interstate like that? Right. Um, as a judge, you know, I wouldn't, there's not anything as a, in that office that could impact it. Again, it's more right. about those conversations and the interactions with people. people. Um, but as a human being and as yeah. a person, like that yeah. affects me, you know, right. like um, I try not to watch, you know, people getting uh, shot and killed by police officers. It's triggering. I'm right. um, thinking about like Mike Brown leaving them in the street. Right. You know, those things go back to, uh, you know, uh, strange fruit, you know, mm -hmm. Billy Holiday, you know, Black body swinging from trees. It's, right. it's, it's imagery. Those things play into your psychology right. about how you respond in certain situations. So um, those things obviously affect me as a person, and that mm -hmm. would. Inf and again, those are the things that I think would help inform the decisions I make on the bench. When you're right. talking to a defendant that may suffer from a mental health issue, um, you know, you you have a different level of compassion because you understand that it's a different path, di different route for somebody that has those issues as opposed right. to somebody that's a quote unquote normal person. I wanna get your thoughts on um, money bill, cash bill. And this is a big one. Um, a lot of people are, or are, you know, trying to figure out what reform looks like around money bill and cash bill. Some people believe that there shouldn't even be a, a money amount associated with a body. Um, many people believe that, you know, it's causing a lot of disparities between the rich and the poor, right? Um, if me and you have the same crime, same offense, I would say, excuse me, same offense, um, and regardless of what the bill is, was 25000 If I can afford it and you can't, you know, that's essentially, you know, create barriers that hey I can go out and continue my life and I can go back to work and you can't because just because of the money simply what are your thoughts on um cash bill reform and money bill reform here in Nashville so I think that it's definitely an appropriate time to make a shift and change in the way that it's handled um you know just thinking about and, I, and again it kind of comes down to you know again kind of educating and people understanding how the system works um if you're charged with a misdemeanor you know, in most cases, you can get released on your own recognizance, depending if you've been arrested before um, or if you show up to court before. Um, and, and people understanding that having money for bail is also a part of your defense, right? You may have to hire an attorney. And so it becomes a numbers money game. Mm -hmm. um, if you're charged with multiple offenses, then you're going to have a higher bail because of the types of offenses or the number of those offenses that occurred. And so it, it definitely puts, you know, a lot of the clients that I've represented um, in a disadvantaged position. Um, preparing for trial is difficult. If I've got a client, you know, that has two indictments, those indictments may have three or four counts each. So each indictment is a packet of discovery. You know, if this person is incarcerated, then I've got to make copies. I've got to mail it to them. The sheriff's office is going to check with me to make sure that I meant to send this person all this paper. 
Um, they're going to have the opportunity to review it, and we're going to talk through a, a glass, right, in order to prepare for their defense. And if they're confident, you know, if we're looking at pictures like, hey, that's not me on that picture, right, um, and then they're in custody, you know, they can't help me identify who this person is. Right. They can only say, well, I know it's not me, you know, and so um, – you know, those things are things that disadvantage specific demographic of people, not just people of color or black people, but people that don't have money. Yeah, poor people, yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's another reason why I always represent indigent people, because I don't think that how much money you make should determine the level of criminal defense attorney you should get. Right. You know, you shouldn't just get somebody that's getting appointed by the state. You, right. know, you should have somebody that cares and is concerned for you being able to have a, a, val a valid defense. Um, and so I think it's appropriate to change the process as it is now. You know, the purpose of bail is to ensure that somebody appears in court. Right. Are there other methods that we have now in technology where we can uh, 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 ensure that someone appears in court? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people have smartphones with some level of location on it. You know, there's other types of GPS devices. Uh, I think that it's easy, right, to, to rely on a dollar amount because uh, that's consistent. Right. right, everybody has or understands the dollar amount, but everybody doesn't necessarily have access to funds to right. be able to bail themselves out. Right. So I think it's an appropriate conversation to have to talk about, you know, what changes could be made to make it where people can be released on their own recognizance to where this charge, right, where you're presumed innocent doesn't disrupt, disrupt your whole life and your livelihood. Man, what are your thoughts on um, on juvenile justice, man? We're seeing... Um, Like here in Tennessee in general, right, there's no kind of minimum age of which a child, a youth can be tried as an adult, mm -hmm. right? And so you can be 16, 15, you can be, you know, you can be prosecuted as an adult for an adult offense. Um, I believe we have a really great um, juvenile court judge here in Sheila Calloway that's doing a lot of restorative justice and, and truly believes that locking up youth um, is not the answer. Um, what role can you see in, you know, as a criminal court judge in Division Six? What role can you see in that juvenile justice happens here in Nashville? And so, to be clear, to make for those that you know may or may not be aware, if, if a juvenile is charged um, as a delinquent or adjudicating delinquency, uh, and then the state requests to try that individual as an adult, they have to have a hearing at the juvenile court level. Mm -hmm. And then if the, the judge determines that there's enough probable cause to bind that over to the criminal court, then it goes to criminal court. Um, and then that case tracks like a regular adult case. Um, so some of the things that I think, you know, I've, I've represented some juveniles, um, uh, a, a few murder cases, uh, dealing with juveniles and attempted murders. And so I definitely can see and understand that there is an issue going on in our city as it relates to surrounding violence. Um, I would say that there are programs in place. You know, there are certain programs that the youth, like some of my clients would get where they were uh, during their, their proceedings in juvenile court, they would get some type of resources, but there's always an opportunity to improve that. And I think that that's one of the things that could be done differently if it were, you know, to come to my division to where I would have different programs that would connect with the youth that would give them a different understanding 
um, of, or connecting with some of the programs that exist now, like the Dismas House. Mm-hmm. Um, Programs where there is somebody that's partnered there with them to help them give them real life resources to help them deal with the issues at hand. I remember when I was teaching at East, uh, one of my students I used to talk about, uh, we, he would come in my and during lunch and sit down and talk to me, and I would we would talk about um, how he handled his anger. Mm-hmm. And the analogy that I made to him was that sometimes when we're, we're born, we're given a, a toolbox, and what we see is what we put in that toolbox. And until we have somebody that's outside that perspective that can give us or equip us, equip us with a different tool, then we learn how to handle situations differently. Right. And so I think that, you know, thinking about the juveniles um, that, that are having those issues and if they were to come into criminal court, to give them a lot of different perspectives from people that can help give them different tools, whether that's talking to a therapist, you know, sometimes dealing with your own issues um, or understanding why you do things, it helps you change your perspective of how you behave. And again, it's a different tool that they may not have been exposed to before. If you only have a hammer and you're trying to do a sculpture, you're never going to have a fine face because you haven't learned how to use a chisel yet. Right. And so those are the things that I think are important, you know, you know to, to have uh, someone that's well-rounded, that can understand the different dynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, that somebody growing up, you know, where they're living on a base income housing, what does that look like? You know, right. free lunch, what does that look like? Right. When you're going to school, dealing with your own identity issues, surrounding who you are as a person. Right. And what positive role models do you have that can say, you know, that speak to you, that right. say, I believe in you, and you are somebody. Right. Not, you know, somebody that's speaking down to you or pejoratively always, or right. you being in custody, you know, and you're separated from your family. So what type of nourishment you know, or nurturing, are you received when you're in those facilities? Like, those are the things that I think um, having some programs that can help, you know, infiltrate those systems would, would help change that. Man, um, a lot of things I think that you're bringing up goes around, like, just having cultural competence, right? Mm. Um, which I think is important. Mm-hmm. And you bring up something that I think, like, kind of get overlooked a lot of the time or people don't look think about, but you... I, you didn't bring it up directly, but you bring it up indirectly and just you being a teacher and teaching Spanish, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Me, myself, also a Spanish speaker. Okay. Habla español. Yeah, mucho. See, mucho, mucho. Yeah, but I think, it's, I think that's crucial, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because we have a, a huge Latinx population here. Mm-hmm. We have a, just a huge diversity of, like, immigrant refugee population here in Nashville. We do. Man, how do you plan to tap into that community right and and garner their trust because they face different barriers from just the fear of being deported mm-hmm. the, not wanting to reach out to law enforcement or appear and understanding like hey I, like I, I go through a different situation nobody's here talking to me because mm-hmm. maybe they don't have the, the same type of representation in in those roles in our legal system that makes them comfortable to feel like, okay, I can go talk to a Marcus. Mm-hmm. Not only because um, I feel like he's a good person, but he speaks my language. Right, You right. know, just that, just that barrier in itself, which is, you know, just, just language justice is a whole nother thing mm-hmm. in itself, right? So how do you plan on, like, tapping in with those um, other communities um, that I kind of, you know, forgotten about a little bit um, in our city in Nashville, you know, specifically the immigrant and, and refugee population. So, you know, um, you know, I did, I spoke, I learned Spanish because of the neighborhood that I lived in. There was, uh, I lived in a neighborhood called Bradford Hills in South Nashville, Antioch-ish, Antioch, whatever you want to call it. So I moved around a lot growing up. 
um, and made just different groups of friends everywhere I, I lived and would learn different experiences being there. Uh, when I was in middle school, I just fell in love with the, the language itself, like understanding, you know, it's a romantic language. And so it kind of Latin, Spanish, French, you know, you kind of all kind of have some overlays, different things like that. And it was a, uh, it was just a challenge to learn the language, to communicate with people. Um, and so it, it became a passion. I, I got college credit for it before I graduated high school to speak Spanish. And so it was only fitting once I started teaching high school, the high school Spanish teacher had left. And so I had an opportunity to fill that void. And I think that that speaks to, you know, the dynamics of, you know, who I am as a person, uh, being a young black man, man in a predominantly black school, even though lit is a, lit, East Lit is a magnet school, so it has, you know, a diverse population. But for them to be able to see a young black man that looks like them that also speaks Spanish. Um, and then when I worked at Walmart, I worked at the Hardin Place Walmart. Um, and if you know anything about the Kurdish community in, here in Nashville, I think it's the second largest Kurdish community in America, only second to Michigan. I think we won. I think might we be one. Yeah, okay, we might be number yeah. one now. Yeah, so yeah, you know, um, you know, when I worked there, they, you know, my, my employees, I was able to connect with them, my associates, um, so much so that they made me like a dictionary, so I could, you know, say Chalabashi, you know, right. and Curtis to just, you know, again, it's to make the connection to say that, hey, I want to learn about your cultural right. experiences because I understand that they may be different from mine, right. but there's something there that that overlaps that we both can connect on. And so I think that it's important, you know, for, for that candidate, you know, that, that gets elected that understands the different communities. You know, Nashville is not monolithic, just like black people are not monolithic. Right. You know, we all hit, each have our complexities and layers to it. And I think every community is like that. And if you spend a little time getting to learn people and you listen, you know, uh, one of my coaches, uh, track coaches at Megs, Alvin Haney, uh, used to always say in class, uh, you have two ears and one mouth which means you should listen twice as much as you talk. Mm. Um, and that's the thing that I think that I'd be able to do greatly um, for the community is whatever the community is, I'm going right. to listen right. um, and hear you, right. you know, so. Man, what, what, what makes you different than the other candidates um, running for this seat? Well. What stands out? I would, you know, you know the one, one thing that I look at is, is, um, being a native Nashvilleian, uh, growing up here, I went to Megs and Hume Fogg. Uh, those magnet schools exposed me to the differences within Nashville itself. Um, and so when you learn in that environment, though that perspective gives you an opportunity to see, okay, here's some things that we did really well. Here's some things we can improve upon. Here's how that impacted me. Here's how I could be better. Mm -hmm. um, I think that someone that is looking to, to fill this role, the candidacy, again, that, that sets me apart is, is my goal is to show that you can have a fair opportunity to come into court no matter who you are, what you look like, what language you speak, um, what religion you may have, that you know, you're a presumed innocent. Um, obviously, there are you know, physical characteristics about me that you know, stand out from everyone. But I think at the end of the day, the thing that comes down to it is the, the competency to be able to listen, to hear the, the issues at hand and make a decision based on the law, not someone that's going to be pressured by the media or the community um, based on, you know, if I think that the law says that this is what should be handled, then that's the choice that I'm going to make. I think this is, I don't want to say it's an elephant in the room, but we know people. Right, we know people. Um, in Nashville, is a majority um, population-wise white city, right? Mm -hmm. 
And there are going to be people probably that have looked at you like this, you know, your entire legal team and say, man, he has dreads. And he look he and is he is he a lawyer is he a rapper is he a basketball player like these are just these, yeah. we understand these things mm-hmm. right this is mm-hmm. this is we, this we is real like we deal right. with that right and those people are going that's going to deter people mm-hmm. possibly from checking your name off on their voters ballot you know when they vote on May third what do you tell those people so I think the thing that's wonderful about that is that, um, and that's what I think that, you know, again, what qualifies me for this position is because when, you, when you're dealing with any adversary, adversary in your life or, or anything in general, um, the persistence and perseverance to, to continue to, to go through because of the, the vision that you believe in. And I think, you know, the thing that I leave those people with after I talk to them and they, you know, may not feel persuaded, it's just I just tell them to keep watching my campaign because I think that you know to to see me is to see me being authentically who I am. Um, you know, there's memes that go around and talk about you know my biggest flex is showing up who I am. You know, I'm gonna be me in whatever environment that I am that I'm in, and sometimes that may push people the wrong way, um, but then sometimes it brings people closer. Um, and even for those that it pushes away, it pushes them away to to take a different perspective. And then they get to kind of see me. And when they do see me, they gravitate back towards me. Um, and so, you know, for those that may think that, you know, my appearance is something that's not of what a judicial candidate looks like, I would tell them to just keep watching, you know. Right. Yeah, no, no. And I know you've probably been facing this your whole career <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> a little bit. So I know you've learned how to navigate it. But, you know, I wanted to give you an opportunity to address those people who may be watching and looking and that's the first thing that probably just came to their mind. Well, so, the, you know, and the, and the thing is, is that um, I've been blessed and fortunate to have, you know, parents, my dad and my mom, my grandmoms, my granddad, people that pour into you, right? You mm-hmm. know, you you're, you are who you are. You know, you are going to be who you're going to be. Um, and it's, it's because of that, I realize it's not it's not really about me. You know, it's mm-hmm. bigger than me. Um, I can't tell you how many different moms or parents send me messages like, my son wants to grow his hair out because of you. Or he feels confident in just wearing an afro because you decided to do what you did. And, um, you know, it's a poem called The Bridge Builder by William A. Drumgool that talks about an old man that's building a bridge over this deep and wide chasm. And when he gets to the the end of the bridge, somebody asks him, you know, why did you do that? Like, you're not going to be able to cross this bridge. You're too old. And he's like, well, it's not for me. It's for those that come after me. Mm. And so I hope that, you know, my hope is that for even those that are deterred or that are like, well, I don't know, well, maybe the next person that you right. look at, you that'll be a second second win thought, not the right. first thing you think of. It's like, oh, no, that's not so, such a big deal, you know. Eight years is a long time. Mm-hmm. Pretty much, I think we was talking about it off camera. So it's a generation, right? It's, it affects essentially 10 years i would say of 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 nashville and people's lives possibly and shape what the next 10 years will look like after that right and what direction it would go right Mm -hmm. what momentum comes behind that you know what does eight years of uh marcus shoot jr um on the seat at the bench of the criminal court judge division six look like I think that, you know, again, the, the division that I'm running for, Division Six, the judge that's retiring was a fair judge, well-respected judge. And so I think that I will be able to continue what he did um, and even go beyond that because he's not, he wasn't a black man. 
Um, but being a black man that understands, you know, what fairness is to give somebody a true opportunity, an opportunity to say, hey, I did something wrong. I'm acknowledging that. I'm taking accountability and responsibility for that. Now I like an opportunity to redeem myself for that. Mm -hmm. I think that's what that looks like. And I think that would shift what our justice system would look like. Well, now, look, I know you got to raise money for your campaign. So we're going to bring on your daughter, London, so she can, uh, you know, talk about the money part and so how people can donate. Hey, London, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. So tell us how people can support your daddy uh, with his campaign. So if you would like to donate to my dad's campaign, please go to shootforjudge.com. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Marcus, man, we just had your daughter on, man. She just she got you that money, man. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> you, you gotta it. You got to donate now. You got to <laughs> donate to the campaign, regardless of how you felt before. But, uh, man, I want to close out by um, giving you a chance to last words, man, what you want to tell the people, and how can people reach out to you. Um, and yeah, man, like, what, what, what's your plans? Well, I hope that, uh, you know, like I said, I enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for having me. I mean, I think it's really important for people to get to know the people that make those decisions for the city. I think that that's one of the things that, you know, really uh, uh, made me exciting for me to come here to speak to you because uh, we need to have, you know, better transparency within our courts. Who, is, who are the people that are making those decisions? Well, if anybody wants to support the campaign, they can go to shootforjudge.com um, and they can get campaign events, volunteer uh, activities, and other things that have to do with the campaign. Cool, man. I appreciate your time, man. Uh, May 3rd. May 3rd is the election. You can early vote April 13th. The last date that you can register to vote is April the 3rd. The election is on May the 3rd. Hope to see you there. Uh, vote for shoot. There we have it, man. I appreciate your time. People, get out there. I try to emphasize this. This is eight years. Uh, we can't take this lightly. These are our local elections. You'll be able to see Marcus in a grocery store and 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 say, hey, I didn't like that. Oh, I did like this. So do that. Like you can do these are the people that you can reach out and touch. And, and it's different from the federal elections. Like, these are people that is in our community, or whether they, you know, moved here, grew up here. And in Marcus' case, he grew up here. So he's a product of Nashville, and I appreciate that as being a product of Nashville, too. And, you know, Nashville excellence, man. So thank yeah. you for, yeah. for what you represent and what you're doing and what you're trying to do for the city, man. I appreciate you. Thank you for your time. For sure.